Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. He was sentenced to life in prison for killing a man when he was just 17 years old. While behind bars, Chris Wilson turned his life around, getting an education and forming a roadmap to becoming a better person. He bravely tells his story in his book, The Master Plan, My Journey from Life in Prison to a Life of Purpose. Today, Wilson is a successful social entrepreneur here in Baltimore who has made it his life's mission to reach out to others in need to help them make their own master plans. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So the book is out. Yes. You've been all over the place. Has it been kind of a whirlwind? It has. A different city every day, planes, trains, automobiles. So I get confused sometimes, <laughs> but but it's been fun. Well, you're back home in Baltimore. Yes. Yeah. Back home. <laughs> that makes it a little easier. So like I said, I devoured this book in two days. Um, it's such a great book, The Master Plan. I kind of want to start with your childhood. I know one of your counselors called it a tour of duty in a combat zone. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of kids that can really relate to that. So explain what you meant by that in the book. It was important for me to talk about that aspect of my childhood because a lot of people go through similar experiences, a lot of gun violence, um, a lot of drug abuse and overdoses and all those kind of things. And, you know, oftentimes, like even teachers, like they they wonder why children can't perform in classes mm-hmm. because of like the, the trauma that they experience in the community. So I wanted to talk about it and also for people to understand what a lot of people go through in their lives before they end up like in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was important for me to talk about that. It was really raw. Was it hard to put it all down on paper? It's hard to put it down on paper and it's still hard to read. And so every time I read it, uh, maybe I read it like maybe five or six times, I still cry like some parts. So some parts I'll just skip over because it's just too painful to read, but still important to talk about it. So for people that don't know your story, you grew up in D.C. So what was that like? You kind of bounced between your mom's house and your grandparents' house. Yeah, so I was kind of like a hybrid. So I I spent time with my grandmother Monday through Friday, and I stayed with my mom who lived in Maryland on the weekends Mm -hmm. because she worked long hours and I was just too young to be in the house um, alone. And so it was different. Like in D.C., it was just like an all-black neighborhood. In my mom's uh, neighborhood, it was a mix. um, Everyone, you know, you name it, everyone was there. So it was different. Yeah, it's Prince George's County, right? Yes. Yeah. How did that impact you as you were growing up as a teenager? I mean, kind of the stuff you saw, what happened with your friends, what happened with your family? Right. It was strange, honestly, because, you know, you think about like Monday through Friday and it's just, you know, people getting gunned down, people getting killed for their their tennis shoes and all kinds of stuff are happening. And the only like white people that we saw were police officers and they were just trying to get us and trying to lock us up and kicking down doors and stuff. And then Friday through Sunday, I would be with my mom and it was like mixed and my friends were white and like my godmother was white and they were nice to me. And so I would go back into my community um, that Monday and, and and folks would be like, man, all white people like out to get us. They want to like, and I was like, no, that's not true. And it was like, like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And it was strange to see the, the contrast. Mm-hmm. As you're growing up, you're a teenager. You grew up a lot faster than yeah. a lot of people do. So how did you get involved? Kind of you talked about how you started carrying a gun for protection. I mean, right. how did that happen? Was it just because everybody else really did? 
Right. So, I mean, I, I write about this in, in the book about how I wasn't, I didn't start out like just like carrying guns. I never wanted to carry a gun. I never wanted to hurt anyone. And I started noticing like people would get killed or shootings would happen in my neighborhood. We'll call the police and they wouldn't show up. Or just even like my mom and I being attacked and the way the police like treated us. And so at a certain point in my life, after burying my friends, after watching my brother get shot, after watching my cousin get gunned down and like so many other people, you know, you figure like I need to get a gun just so people won't bother me. Mm -hmm. Because if everyone's dying, then maybe I'm next. And so that, that was what prompted me to get the gun. And even then, I still didn't want to hurt anyone. Mm -hmm. Your cousin being killed felt like a real turning point for you yeah. in your life. What kind of impact did that have? So my cousin was actually like my brother. I was closer to my cousin, Eric, than I was to my own brother. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't understand it. Like he was killed for nothing just because he was from the wrong neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so they killed him for that. And I just, I felt like around this time I was losing so many people um, that I felt like, you know, that maybe, you know, my turn was next that maybe I will be um, killed soon. And so I just started carrying a gun and, you know, I didn't want to die, so. Mm -hmm. And that level of fear uh, was kind of warranted. You talk about being dragged into a basement. Yeah. By guys, tell me about that. Right. I mean, and, and, and like, I mean, it's so crazy. I didn't even do anything. Yeah. I didn't even know these people. Like it was a mistaken identity. But I just remember that moment when, you know, they were arguing about where they wanted to dump my body and I could hear them. And I was a child. I, I think I was 16 when this happened. Jeez. And, I, you know, I used the bathroom on myself. And when they realized that it wasn't me, like, they let me go. And I had a gun on me, by the way. They took the gun from me because, like, I, I wasn't, um, I couldn't use it. Mm -hmm. And so they, they took it from me. Um, but then later when I got back home, like, my friends and some of my family members, they laughed at me. Because they was like, how you let yourself get kidnapped when you had a gun on you? And I remember at that moment, like, I kept thinking so many things were happening I kept thinking like, well, I'm not going to let this happen again. Mm -hmm. And so like the next time, I'm going to just have to respond because like I'm not going to allow someone to kill me. And I eventually caught my charge a few a few months later. Mm -hmm. So tell me what happened that few months later because it felt like kind of an eerily yeah. similar situation leading up to it. Right. And so around this time, my family was being stalked by the police officer. Like he was out of prison. Yeah, he was police officer us. who was your stepfather. Originally. Yeah. yeah. And... At the time in the state of Maryland, there wasn't any laws against stalking. So they, people could stalk you and call you and harass you or whatever. It wasn't a law um, against it. And so I started carrying it. You know, I, I started making sure I had my gun on me at all times. And so one night I went out and these two men started following me. And I noticed they were following me. And so I went somewhere that was like a lot of light and like a gas station and mm -hmm. people out and stuff. And I was like, well, if they're going to try to do something to me, I doubt they'll try it here. And I remember them walking up on me and they asked me, like, are you Chris? And I was like, yeah, what's up? And he was like, we've been watching you. We've been watching your family. And you don't think for a moment that you're safe. And then one of the guys tried to get behind me. And I just remember at that moment, I just pulled my gun and I started firing my weapon. And then they ran in one direction and I went in another direction. And I found out later that I ended up um, taking a person's life. Mm -hmm. And then what happened from there? The arrest, all of that. I mean, you were just 17. Yes. Really young. Right. So, I mean, they, they charged me as an adult. And because of, like, the way I grew up, I didn't want to talk about, like, what was happening, being stalked by a police officer. I mean, I, I didn't want to tell the police that I was being, like, you know, stalked by a police officer. Well, yeah, it didn't help before. Right. When, you, yeah. when you went for help, they didn't right. give it to you. So And so I just kind of kept my mouth shut and just tried to fight it in court. And I ended up getting found guilty and sentenced to natural life in prison. Mm-hmm. What's that moment like when you're 17 years old and you think that's it? You're in prison for life. 
I mean, I, I fell into a, a deep depression, like my first year and a half in prison. And I just couldn't believe that my life was over. I knew like in my heart that I was a good person and that, you know, I was book smart. And then, you know, I was on the chess team and played the cello, but I never like really applied myself because people in my neighborhood was like, that, you know, those things aren't cool. And so it was around this time that I really um, wanted to prove to myself and prove to the world that my life was redeemable. And so that's when I decided to write up a master plan around this time. I think I was, at this point, I was 19. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, I'm gonna show people that I'm intelligent. I'm gonna show people that my life is um, redeemable and that mm -hmm. I can get out and be successful. Mm -hmm. That's how it started. You talk about in the book um, hitting rock bottom, which I thought what you said about that is really interesting yeah. because a lot of people can hit rock bottom in different ways. Right. But you talk about hitting rock bottom in prison, and this wasn't really the first year or so you were in prison. This was a couple years yeah. later. And you're right. They call it rock bottom like it's a hard floor you go crashing into and stop. But here's the thing. There's no floor you only see it that way later because rock bottom isn't a place. You can always go lower. Rock bottom is a decision. Right. It's the moment you decide to stop falling and take control of your life. Absolutely. How big was that moment for you? Because things really turned around when you did hit rock bottom. Right. And I, it was important for me to word it that way because I don't want people to think that you got to go to prison or you got to, you know, go through some, um, like, something as serious yeah. for you to hit rock bottom. It's just the point where it's like you're at the lowest point in your life. And it's when you decide that you don't want to go any lower and that, you know, you want to do something different. And so that's how I define it. But when I was at that space, I just was like, you know, I don't want to go out like this. I don't want people to think about me and remember me as a person who took a person's life. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I know I can do more with my life than that. And so that was my moment when I was like, all right, I'm going to really push myself to be like better. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about the master plan, the first iteration of the master plan. What is it for people who don't know what it is? Right. So for me, like the master plan was kind of like a bucket list, but it was, it was thinking about who I want to become. Um, like, so I just turned 40, right, two months ago, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought about like, who would I want to become at 40 years old? What do I want to do? And I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to be able to travel the world. I wanted to write a book. And it was some other stuff that I'm, I'm a little like... Um, embarrassed that like mentioned <laughs> that I wanted that I put on a list. But, well, it's 19 year old. Yeah, I think we'd all be yeah. very embarrassed about what we wanted <laughs> yeah. at 19. Yeah, but I put all those things on there. But the most important thing on the master plan is that I wanted to be free again. And I wanted to be free and I wanted to return into the communities like the ones that I grew up in because oftentimes people would come in my neighborhood and say, look, you need to cut some grass, you need to start your own business or you need to get a job. But no one really showed me or any of my friends how to do these things. And so in my mind, I wanted to become that person that could do that for like the other Chris's or Christine's in the world. And so that was kind of like the genesis of the master plan. The Free to Be More podcast is sponsored by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Stream your favorite TV shows and the latest music albums with Hoopla Digital. All you need is a Pratt Library card to access some of the latest media without leaving your home. You can download ebooks with no wait time. Check out Hoopla Digital at prattlibrary.org. But it was a physical list that you wrote down. So right. what did you do with that list the first time you wrote it down? Right. So so one of the most important things about creating a master plan is, one, you got to write it down. Um, two, you need to give power or share the master plan with someone and give them power to hold you accountable to your master plan. And so for me, when I wrote it up, 
I shared it with my grandmother and my judge. And, you know, everyone listens to grandmas, right? So it's like <laughs> you said it to grandma's law. And so it's that's important because, you know, when you're working towards something and like if you start slacking, you need someone to be like, look, you're supposed to be working towards this high school diploma. You're supposed to be working towards this degree. And like you need to get back on it. And so that was very important. Some other things was creating a personal board of advisors. And so having um, a group of people who are like experts in different areas, finance, relationships mm-hmm. and stuff, and then having them give you advice to help you work towards your master plan and other things like, you know, just never, never uh, giving up. Mm-hmm. So you write the master plan that year, your 19-year-old yeah. master plan. What are the first steps you take? Because now you're 19 years old, you're in prison for life for as far as you yeah. know. So what are you able to do within that environment to change your life? So the, the first thing I, I believe, or the, maybe the second thing was on the list, was very difficult for me. And it was to stop calling home every mm-hmm. day. And I would call home every day. My family uh, cut me off once I went to prison because they was like, you got a life sentence. What's the point? And so I would call every day. And it was something psychological about it. It was like, maybe they'll answer this time. Yep. And like, they, you know, they blocked the number and they wouldn't pick up. And so that was the thing. I was like, well, stop calling home. And then I'm going to just like really focus on this plan and like work towards my education. And so that was that was very difficult. But that was like the first thing that I had to do. And then after that was get my high school diploma. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about that process of getting your high school diploma. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because that was not easy. Yeah, it, it was. <laughs> no, it wasn't easy at all. <laughs> and it was a very interesting way how um, I started studying when I went off to prison. And my cell buddy, who eventually became my, my mentor, he had an interesting way of um, tutoring me. So he would give me problems, math problems, word problems, and stuff to do essays. And if I got it wrong, I would have to do push-ups or drink a cup of water. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting my high school diploma in like two and a half months. And I put on some muscle, too. So it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> you went far beyond that. What else yeah. were you able to continue striving for? So when I was in, so I, I set my mind. That was, and that was one of the most important things for the master plan. Um, was to educate myself mm-hmm. because my logic was, you know, the world, society, prison, whatever can take everything from you. But if you educate yourself, no one can take that from you, mm-hmm. right? So I wanted to educate myself. So after that, I did. I took every vocational shop that was available in prison. So like carpentry and sheet metal and, and plumbing and woodworking. And so I did all those things. And then I went on to get my college degree in sociology I studied foreign languages, so I, I taught myself to read and write and speak in Spanish and Italian, and I went on to um, study Mandarin. And once I graduated college, I just kept studying in hundreds of books and starting book clubs and reading the newspaper and magazines, and I just never stopped. Mm-hmm. And you inspired other people when right. you were behind bars to kind of do the same thing, right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, be honest with you, like it was a certain point when I was I was knocking out all these um, educational um, accomplishments. And my mentor, um, who was in prison, um, Stephen, he was like, I mean, it's great, Chris, but like, think about what you can do, like, to help everyone else in prison. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was like, I don't know these dudes. I ain't get locked up with them. Yeah. But he actually changed my mind. And so I started tutoring and helping people. And then after that, like, the blessings were coming tenfold. And mm-hmm. it was just such a, even today, like, it's it's the best feeling to help someone and, and not want anything in return, just to... Um, to show some love to someone. So I try to do that every day. You were striving to get into business. Yes. And you're behind bars and you started a business behind yeah. bars. <laughs> yeah, I, rem- I remember um, we had the subscription to um, Popular Science Magazine and I-, I read this article one day and it was like, digital cameras, you can print <laughs> 
the pictures. And I was like, what? You can print as many as you want. And I was like, wow. And we were using Polaroid cameras at the time. And I was like, you know, you get like 10 or 12 photos and like some will go bad. And so I was like, how about we start a business from this? And then we use the money to provide like stuff for folks, um, the prisoners inside of the prison. So like ping pong tables and basketball equipment. And so I pitched the idea and we ended up like doing really well. Mm -hmm. You were sentenced to life in prison. Yes. How did you turn that around? How were you able to get out and convince a judge that you could give back to society? Like to be honest with you, so it was a combination of things. So it was a lot of therapy. And that was part of the master plan. I wanted to understand what led me to prison and what would keep me home once I got out. The other thing was just like really, really embracing my education. I mean, data supports that folks who like educate themselves get college degrees, they don't recidivate. So I was like, all right, I want to make sure that if I do make it out, I can get out. Um, the, the the third thing was regaining my faith mm-hmm. in God. And so I, like I had lost my faith. Like sure. my mom, like, you know, was attacked and like I lost so many people. And so I questioned my faith. And so I kind of regained that and I would sit in my cell at night and read my master plan and I would, (laughs) all kinds of silly things. I would like, God, I need you to say something or I need you to bend this plastic spoon. But (laughs) those things didn't happen. But like, I would say, if you show me some kind of sign, if I get out, I'm going to commit my life to providing opportunities for people in these neighborhoods. And two weeks later, I got a court date. Mm -hmm. And so that was my sign. What was that day like in court? Oh, I was terrified. So, I can imagine you were. So I, I was terrified. Like no family showed up. I was just in there. Um, my therapist showed up. And I just remember just like at the end of the day, I was just going to be honest with the judge. And so I just told her the truth. I told her I told her about what it felt like as a young man to watch your friends gun down in front of you. Like two of my friends got killed in front of me mm-hmm. and I had to send them off. I talked about what it felt like as a mama's boy. And I love my mom more than anyone to mm-hmm. watch her be attacked in front of me and violated by a police officer. And I talked about how remorseful I was for what I'd done. I talked about how much I educated myself behind the fence, but I talked about what I would do if she gave me a second chance. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked about the opportunities that I would create for people if I got out. Mm-hmm. When you did get out eventually, after 16 years, right? Yes. How difficult was it to re-enter society? How difficult is it for anybody coming out of prison right. to try and make something of themselves? So, so it's very, very difficult. Um, it's actually... It's suspiciously difficult, right? So, mm-hmm. like, your first, you come home and you got to check in with your um, probation officer uh, twice a week, and then you got to take your analysis. You have to pay for those urinalysis. But then they also tell you, like, well, you need to get a job. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, what employer is going to let you leave work twice a week, like, to go do this? And it's just, it makes it so difficult. And it's almost, you know, like, this, the system is set up for you to fail. And so it was very difficult for me, but the good thing is I knew it was going to be that difficult. And so I surrounded myself with a support network, um, friends and family who um, just showed me love and encouraged me when times when I just like didn't understand stuff that that made sense. And I just worked really hard and was able to um, find a job and um, make it out of that situation. Mm -hmm. You talked about living in a halfway house and you came here to the library, right? Yeah. What was that? Right, so, what were we able to do here? So so a few blocks from here was the halfway house, uh, which was a horrible experience, by the way. But sometimes, um, at least a couple of times a week, I was allowed to go to the library. And so it was like the highlight 
highlight of my um, my time there where I can get a pass for a couple of hours and I would just check out a couple of books. Mm-hmm. I would be able to go into the labs downstairs mm-hmm. and, and look for jobs and like Google, like Google was amazing. Like I wanted to <laughs> learn how to tie tie stuff. And so I would go down to the labs downstairs and like watch these tutorials on like how to tie winds or not, or just, you know, just try to figure out life um, through the library. And so. That's amazing. And you said you were able to get a job, but more than that, you're able to get a job giving back, which right. is what you wanted to do. Tell right. me about that first job that you were able to get out of prison. Yeah. So, so it was, it was, I was definitely blessed. So I got a job doing exactly what I wanted to do. So it was community organizing and workforce development. And it was through um, Strong City now, but it used to be um, Greater Homewood Community Corporation. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they really like pushed me to work in communities and make sure the community, like their voices were included. And I would go to all these meetings with the churches and like the grandmas in the neighborhood and like drug dealers, like everyone in the neighborhood. So they really like pushed me to learn um, how you build communities. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was um, a life-changing experience for me. How have you been able to talk to other people that maybe are the 15-year-old version of you right. and show them that there is a different path? I mean, that's, that's that's the most important and rewarding work that I've been doing lately. Uh, for example, I was in Miami um, yesterday, and it was this young guy who was 17 who was about to go to college, and his mom had brought him there to meet me. And she was like, can you, like, tell my, my son something, right? Like, what, what should he know? And I remember I kind of, like, went off script, and I was just telling him how important it is for him to be successful how important it is for him to be able to tell his story. Because we always hear stories about people who look like me, who um, went to prison and come home and they messed up and stuff. And we need to tell more stories of success. And we need more people, especially young black men who, and I told him, I said, listen, like the deck is stacked against you. Mm -hmm. The police, unfortunately, like some of them see you as a target. People are scared of you when they see you in the streets. And it's our obligation to like work really hard, educate ourselves, to prove people wrong to let them know like that we're good people and that we can be successful. And then we got to go back to our neighborhoods and show other people that we're successful and then help them do it. The Free To Be More podcast is sponsored by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Now featuring Canopy, a free video streaming service available with your library card. Stream over 30,000 titles with the click of a button. Learn more at prattlibrary.org. You really wanted, obviously, to help people, but one of the groups you've wanted to help the most are you call returning citizens, yes. people that are coming out of prison. So through your businesses, how have you been able to help other returning citizens? So some of my companies kind of started by accident, right? So <laughs> so doing uh, the workforce development. Yeah, happy accident. Yeah. Um, I just got frustrated by talking to employers and folks and employees would say, like, man, I don't want to hire them because, you know, he got a criminal conviction. I was like, but it's 25 years ago. But like, they didn't care. And so out of frustration, I started um, my companies. I started a furniture company. I started a construction contracting company. And these same people that would get rejected, I would give them opportunities to work. And it wasn't like a handout. I would tell them like, listen, I don't care that you've been in prison. I don't care how tough life is. I need you to show up on time. I need you not to be checking your phone. Keep your pants pulled up. And we're going to work really hard. And we're going to earn an honest living. And so I've been doing that for a couple of years, about seven years now. And it's just one of the most rewarding uh, feelings to to hand someone a paycheck and then tell them, like, listen, you don't have to look over your shoulder. Like, this is like legit money. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's just great doing that. How do you convince other people and have you seen other people 
form their own master plans? So um, I think everyone, and you don't have to be like impacted by the criminal justice system like mm-hmm. to, um, to start your own master plan. But I just encourage people to think about what is the life that you want to live? Like whether it's like you want to be like a bird watcher and spend your summers in Brazil or like travel or whatever. And I encourage people to think about what that lifestyle is and then work backwards. Maybe you need to get educated. Maybe you need like a um, different set of friends. Maybe you need to like set up like a regiment of like studying and stuff and then really work towards it because the best feeling I think is to get up out the bed every morning and know that you're working towards something that matters, that has a purpose. And so I encourage people to think about that and imagine a world when we all done that. I think it'd be different. Mm -hmm. It's real goal setting. Right. And then working, you know, actual plan. Right. And then when you get to check it off, you get to check it off list like it's done. Like, so it's just the best for me. I know. In your book, you put your year to year master plans. And it's nice because you can see where you put done, done, done. It's great. Yeah. I mean, it had to feel great. The other thing I loved you talked about are positive delusions. So when you were in prison, you talked about having pictures from magazines that were up. I said it's like vision boarding. Yeah, vision boarding. Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) So that's, that's interesting, right? I was actually thinking about that very thing this morning. And even like my life is great. I travel the world and I'm doing great work. But like sometimes like people will not accept you. Mm-hmm. And for me, even like me um, having a criminal conviction, like some people just like don't want to deal with me, don't want to support me and stuff. And like sometimes like it's painful for me, but like the positive delusion, which I call it, is like you just got to truly believe that like what you're doing is good, that you can live a good life and that things are going to happen. And it's like speaking and thinking things into existence. And so I just operate like that and it just keeps me going. Mm-hmm. Throughout your life, you talk about how important reading has yeah. been to you. In fact, in the back of your book, you put a big long right, yeah. list of a reading yeah. list. Gotta for knock them all out. Yeah. I know. Was there one book, was there two books or stories that really hit home with you that were impactful yeah. that you kind of go back to? So I think maybe like two. Like the first one I talk about, like is weaved all throughout my book is Plato's Allegory to Cave. Yes. And that's that's within um I think the Republic, the book. And so that that was a real powerful story about, you know, prisoners being locked up in one prison or escaping the cave, but either being captured and returned to the cave or just returning on his own free will, but with the mission to lead his friends um, out of that figurative cave to see that there was a beautiful world out there. So like that really like touched me and I kind of operate life um, with that story in mind. And then the other one was um, Frederick Douglass when he was learning how to read. So I start my book with a Frederick um, Douglass quote when he's saying that um, knowledge is the pathway to freedom. And again, like it's the same thing about the master plan. It's like you educating yourself and teaching yourself things and, and helping other people. Like nobody can take that from you. And and living that kind of life um, allows you to um, achieve amazing things. And so that's what I try to encourage people mm-hmm. to do. I was reading it too because the cave really is sort of weaved all throughout your book. Right. And I thought it was interesting because it talks about people who are trapped in a cave and all they can see is what they can see out of the cave and they think right. that's the whole world. Right. But then somebody gets out and realizes that there's a big, beautiful world out there. It's a good analogy for prison, but it was also a good analogy for where you grew up, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have a lot of people, even like in the neighborhoods that I grew up in, like you might have someone who gets up every morning, they go to their job, maybe they work at the post office, um, they come home, they sit down for dinner, and then they go to sleep. 
or they, maybe they watch the news, they get up, they do it all over again. But meanwhile, like their neighbors are suffering, people across the street are suffering, all kinds of stuff is happening, but they tune it all out. They live in a bubble. And there's a lot of people, um, especially in America, that live in that bubble. And, and that could be a cave. It, do, it doesn't have to be like prison. It doesn't even have to be like a tough neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But it's like, we need to get outside of um, these caves or this way of thinking and really absorb what's going on in the world and be a part of it, be a part of the change. Like we got tons of complainers, but we need people who are willing to work towards solutions. Mm-hmm. You've worked so hard. You have these businesses now. You're doing exactly right. what you wanted to be doing. So when you take a step back and look at it, do you even think, gosh, I can't believe I accomplished <laughs> all of this? Yeah. I mean, I, I pinch myself um, all the time. I, I did it this morning, just like just waking up and it's like, I can't believe like this is real. I actually get nervous sometimes because it's like, you know, the pendulum may swing back in the other direction, mm-hmm. but I stay optimistic. I just want to encourage other people to want to live their best life. We, we can only do this once, mm-hmm. right? So we, we can't hit a reset button. And so I just think about what the world would be like if we all like pushed ourselves to our, um, our maximum potential. Mm-hmm. So what inspired you to write your whole story down and share it with the world? So it was when I opened up in therapy when I was in prison. I think I was probably, I don't know, maybe like two years in. And I just started thinking about all the things that I survived, right? And I thought about the story that I could possibly tell. And I was like, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to get out of prison. I'm going to start a business. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to travel around the world. And I think if I could do that, and I believe that I can do it, it was my positive delusion, then that would be a a book that I think would have inspired people. And so I was able to pull it off. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) that's great. So you have inspired so many people. Who inspires you? A lot of people. Um... I mean, well, it's a handful of people who have mentored me when I was in prison. So like one of my my friends who I write about, um, Stephen Edwards, Mm -hmm. him, his family, his brothers, like his mom, his dad, um, my professors in college um, inspire me. And even today, like I have advisors, I have people who invest in me, who support me. And that's that's the most important thing, too, is like, you know, there's nothing special about me. I'm not unique. I've made it this far because those handful of people have invested in me and saw potential in me and they continue to push me to be a better person. And so I encourage other people to find the other crystals of the world and do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I was really inspired by the ending of your book, the very ending. So I just want to read one little part of it. You write, but I'll keep putting it out there. I'll keep trying to make those connections because I want to change this system for every young man and woman in the streets. I want them to know they can break this cycle. They can make something beautiful of their lives. All they have to do is reach out and we'll be there. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's important to me to let people know that there's an army of us out here that's just waiting to support people that's working towards bettering themselves. And like, you know, let's face it, like we got a lot of work to do like in this country, but there are people who are working towards uh, self-improvement. And I want to let them know that like I'm here to support them and and my my friends and we're going to make sure that people have what they need. Mm -hmm. Chris Wilson, the master plan, go out and get it. It's a (laughs) great book. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Dive into a world of imagination at this year's Imagination Celebration, sponsored by Transamerica. It all kicks off Saturday, April 6th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Maryland Historical Society. Face painting, crafts, and games, fun for the whole family. Then join in Imagination Celebration events all April long at all of Pratt's 22 locations. More details at prattlibrary.org.
I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.